The podcast this week is brought to you by DoorCountyTickets.com. Door County Tickets is an online ticket portal dedicated exclusively to Door County events like the Door County Beer Festival, the Peninsula Century Spring and Autumn Classics, and musical acts throughout the county. For more information, visit DoorCountyTickets.com. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going great, Andrew. It is officially winter now since the last time that we talked on the podcast. Yeah, it came hot on my birthday. My birthday is November 9th. This is the first time in, I I mean, I could be wrong about this, but it's got to go back like 25, 30 years that I remember snow being on the ground on my birthday. Right. I mean, uh, an early November snowfall isn't too uncommon. I mean, I've I've been through a couple in my life too, but it, it always is jarring, especially because like I'm the type of person who doesn't want to think about Christmas until after Thanksgiving. But then when it snows before Thanksgiving, you kind of kind of feel like you have to. Yeah. And uh, immediately once like all the leaves are gone and that snow is down, you're like, well, I might as well get into this a little bit. But otherwise it's like two or three weeks of this purgatory. And normally like you get flurries and stuff, but having it stick like it did kind of stinks because I was not nearly prepared with my house and didn't get that last lawn mowing, leaf raking, gutters clean, long laundry list of things I didn't get done. Oh yeah, no, I was the same way. And I kept telling my wife, like if this doesn't stick and it thaws, then we go out and we do all those things like the first chance that we get, even if it That's takes what I'm the whole too. weekend. Like if it if it melts, if it, if we hit like the thirty nine forty tomorrow and this is all gone, I have a lot of work I got to catch up on. Speaking of catching up, uh, what do we got going on in the Pulse this week? This week, one of the big things we were covering this week, Jim Lundstrom was down at the county board meeting. Yes, they approved their new budget, and but one of the the larger items was they were discussing whether to put a referendum on the April ballot to gauge Door County sentiment on legalizing marijuana. So this would be right on the tail of a bunch of other counties doing a referendum on election day, right? Yeah. So on November 6th, several other counties across the state had similar referendums. They're non-binding. It doesn't legalize it in those specific counties. It would just, uh, it's just gauging the public support for the legalization of marijuana. Right. And those, for the most part, passed pretty overwhelmingly. Yeah, for the most part, they passed. And then even other states had uh, referendums on their ballots um, statewide, and those passed. So we have Michigan, more and more states. Yeah. Michigan voted to legalize marijuana. Correct, correct? yep. Um, so, I mean, that would be our neighbor just to the, the north. North and east. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I always think when I'm looking at the map at Washington Island, if you continue on in that same trajectory that the peninsula is pointing to the island and then beyond, then you there's hit. another peninsula pointing down. And I like to think that that's bizarro, Door County. Yes. And everything's the same. It's just upside down. <laughs> so that went before the county board. They discussed it, and they actually voted it down pretty solidly, 14 to 6. And it was interesting in what Jim w- was covering down there. Some of the arguments against even putting that referendum forward were just kind of kind of old school. Sure. Well, what's the demographic of the county board? The county board has traditionally made up of older men, <laughs> older white men in Door County. So sure. um, there are there has been an influx of some more women in the last few years um, and then uh, some more uh, younger folks. But for the most part, it's it's still like most boards up here, much older than than you and I, at least. Well, then I wonder, too, uh, what are the demographics on the marijuana debate? So I would think that, you know, most people my age tend to be in favor of legalization. Um, then as you get older, does that start to cramp down? I mean, what about what about your age range? 
Yeah, I mean, I think most people in my age bracket, I am now 40, um, also are generally for the legalization. I would guess it would break down in something like the 60 to 70% for it, maybe higher. I personally, I'm for it just from the standpoint of legalize it, tax it, and spend less money enforcing it as, as a crime and spend less money incarcerating people once they get like a marijuana offense and another offense and another offense and now you're you're imprisoning them. I, I just don't think it's very effective. And I mean, if you look at the, the history of our drug war, it just hasn't been very effective since the 1970s. In fact, when Richard Nixon first commissioned a study on uh, illicit drugs in the United States back in the 1970s, they came back and told him, yeah, you, let, do not launch a drug war. Do not. Um, a lot of this can be legalized, taxed, and regulated. And instead, he launched a drug war, and then Ronald Reagan escalated it, and we've pretty much escalated it ever since. It's been a political non-starter to, to go opposite on that until recently when Washington and Colorado legalized it in 2012. Well, and I think that that's a, a good way to look at it and also a really decent way to argue for it is uh, the, the cost-benefit analysis. I mean, you're, you're spending much less money on the, the prison system and, and keeping people in jail, and then you also now have a new taxable resource that's, that's coming through. Um, and it's a, a lot better argument than, you know, it should be legal because it's fun, which yeah. is the argument that I go to. But at the same time, you know, it, when, you, when you think of it that way, uh, I, I wonder why it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't pass. Well, there's, there are still a lot of uh, fear. Like there are, you know, it's only been legal in a couple of states for about the last six years. There are some people who point to some uptick in crime in certain states where it's been legalized, but nobody has definitively, definitively said what that uptick is related to. There's some, it coincides a little bit with marijuana being legalized, but there's not, they, there's not like a testing system. Like we know how many accidents have alcohol as a factor. Well, not specific. We don't know that exactly, but we, we have a pretty good estimate of how many car accidents are related to alcohol right. in some way, shape or form. They don't have those kind of measurements for marijuana use per se. They don't test for that as regularly or as easily. And so there's a lot of things that some people are attributing to marijuana use that might actually be like if somebody's high and but has like three times the legal limit, blows three times the legal limit for blood alcohol, you know, wh what is that attributed to? Is that attributed to the marijuana or the guy being obscenely drunk? Right. So that there's some iffiness there. There are some, even uh, what Jim said at the county board, there are some people who seem more like that old school 1930s era reefer madness video and film strip that they would put out in as scare tactics of right. people using marijuana and then becoming psychotic and killing people and, and going crazy. There are some people who are still wedded to that idea of what marijuana is. And there are people who see it as a gateway drug to other drugs. Although there's a lot of studies who show that that's, that show that that's maybe not as reputable a, a, an opinion as it, as it once was. I think, I, you know, it's kind of disappointing that they wouldn't just say, all right, let's put it to the voters. It's non-binding. So why not just take it to them and, and see what the public sentiment in the county is? Right. Well, and you would think that that would be the, the logical choice after, like we said, a number of counties putting this to a referendum and seeing them pass. Plus with uh, Tony Evers winning, I mean, he is a proponent of medical marijuana and has said that he is open to a statewide legalization referendum as well. So you would think that in the face of all of that, this would maybe be an easy pass for Door County. Yeah. And one of the things that's a little bit disappointing is when you hear the discussions and it's based, you know, at a, at a county level, you hear people talking and you're always going to get some of this, but it's based sort of like personal opinion rather than some sort of evidence-based information that they're bringing to the table. And because there is a lot of evidence, there are a lot of studies out there, but you have people 
um, referencing things that they don't have something to back up. I think one of the board members, Ken Fisher, had said that other places are considering recriminalizing marijuana already. Well, I, I looked and looked and looked, and I, I haven't found any evidence of that. And I, the only slight evidence of that is the Colorado governor saying, well, if it turns out, basically him saying that if it turns out that it is rising crime rates, we would look at recriminalizing it. There's nothing like impending, and there's no major um, city or community doing serious discussions that have gone, ha, that have legalized marijuana that are now looking at recriminalizing it. So that's disappointing. And, and also just the fact that, you know, I think it would be an interesting one to gauge the county's reaction to. So, right. Well, and that's always a fun argument to go up against the, the kind that is just pulled out of the air. Like that, that's my dad's argument tactic as well to be like, well, if you look, you'll find that blank. And it's like, what are you citing? There's no, there's no source. And then of course I'll look and there's nothing. And he's like, well, if you go. Well, the neat thing about those arguments is there's this thing called the Google and you can actually solve that right away. And the people who bring these up, they can look that up. And within a minute or two, you can have a pretty good gauge. Like, wow, there's no results for like the first four pages of this question. Maybe it's not that prevalent. Or right. maybe I have to dig a lot deeper and do a little more work to actually find that out. I do that. I find that a lot. Like you got to go deeper and, and, and do some more digging. But yeah, so we're not going to get that on the ballot in April. Well, maybe, maybe next year. <laughs> what else do we got going on? We got a lot of road construction coming up in Fish Creek and Ephraim next year. Actually, right. some of it's already started. Right. Ephraim is going, there's some detouring that's going on, what, this weekend or next? Uh, they have a detour this week through the 16th that was just taking some, they're, they're laying down some uh, wire and stuff and working on some of the, the sewer issues in Ephraim. So they were uh, detoured on the, off of 42 up County Q for about five days. Very short term, temporary detour uh, while they did some work on Highway 42. But the bulk of the the significant work is coming up next spring. Right. So I saw that there's an article on the Pulse website that kind of breaks down Ephraim's budget for their road construction, right? So you can look and see line by line what exactly is going to be done. Is that sort of information easily accessible for the rest of the road construction? Town of Gibraltar has a lot of information on their website that breaks down a lot of the specifics. We'll be doing an article in next week's Pulse that will break down a lot more of what people can expect next uh next spring and, and fall and, and a little bit into the summer. But in general, the, the, the layout of the story is the DOT is doing some major resurfacing work from the bottom of the Fish Creek Hill as you enter Fish Creek, so by like the Bayside Tavern, all the way through the north side of Ephraim over the next like 16 months. That actually end, the work ends at the uh, Country Walk Drive, so up by the Piggly Wiggly and Sister Bay. So it's a pretty long stretch, encompasses all of Fish Creek and all of Ephraim. And they're going to resurface all of Highway 42. But the biggest roadblock, you're going to have your typical flagging stop and goes um, throughout those towns at various points. But in Fish Creek, they're kind of reconstructing the entire hill by Gibraltar School, where right now there are no sidewalks and there's no good crosswalks between the, say, the school and if you cross the street to the YMCA or you uh, maybe the Fish Creek Grill or the top of the hill shops, there's not good crosswalks set up there. And that is the busiest year-round intersection in Northern Door. You have five to 700 people at the school property every single day, a couple hundred at the YMCA every day. You've got the Peninsula School of Art, and you've got three big motels and the top of the hill shops all in that corner. But there are no sidewalks and no pedestrian connection to downtown Fish Creek. And there's no con- pedestrian connection between, like, the School of Art and those shops or anything. So, Well, yeah, and that, that area, it, it's... 
funny when you kind of lay it out like that. There is so much going on, and and yet it it does feel like it is separated from Fish Creek in a way because it's it's so you know you have to drive to it. It's really hard to walk from you know say the bank in Fish Creek all the way up to top of the hill shops. Yeah, and they, and it just doesn't feel safe as a pedestrian. If you're walking up there, say you're staying at the Homestead or Julie's Park uh, Cafe Motel, and you wanted to walk up the hill to go to a show at the auditorium, well, especially at night, there's no sidewalk, there's no protect, protected pedestrian walkway to go up there. Conversely, if you're a elementary class at Gibraltar Art School and you want to walk those kids down to the park or walk them into town, uh, there's no, you're walking on the highway with a bunch of kids. So it's, I remember doing that when I was a kid uh, as a student at Gibraltar School. Is this going to fix uh, pulling in and out of Wild Tomato? Because that's maybe the (laughs) scariest thing in Door County for me. (laughs) Yeah, that is, that intersection is tough because you have the, the, the Peninsula State Park across the street as you're pulling out and, you know, there's a lot of cars parked there. So your vision is, is pretty limited, especially if you're trying to turn left out of there. It's not going to help that. But what is going to happen is they are putting in uh, pedestrian medians that will go between like the um, auditorium and Fish Creek Grill that's across the street there. So pedestrians won't have to sprint across the entire st- uh, road at once in one swoop. They can stop in the middle and be in a protect- protected median while they wait for traffic to come and go. They're going to have another one of those between the YMCA and the Gibraltar football field, which is where students go to the YMCA after school. So there'll be a median there for students as well. So it, it will make pedestrian crossings a lot better. You're going to have a lot more pedestrian sidewalks. But what's going to happen in um, a good portion of next spring, there will be a, a hard closure of the hill portion. So between March and the end of June, there will be periods where it, it will be completely closed off from Shore Road, which is the entrance to Peninsula State Park, all the way up to the pedestrian crossing at the YMCA, which means that traffic will be detoured from, if you're going north, you'll be detoured down at County E and Egg Harbor over to County A and then north around Fish Creek entirely. However, they, you can still access Fish Creek businesses and things by driving into Fish Creek, but you'll just have to go back out and turn around and drive around the, the village for a couple of months there in the spring. So it's, it's affecting those downtown businesses quite a bit, and they're, gonna, they're working on some uh, kind of construction-specific signage to help people access those. But the ones that really have a tough hill to climb are those that are located between the YMCA and the intersection of County A, kind of at the north side of the Peninsula State Park. Because along that stretch, you have Alexander's Restaurant, English Inn, there's the Fish Creek BP gas station, the Skyway Drive-In Theater, and then Fika, uh, the the bakery and coffee shop that your in-laws own. Right. So there's you won't be able to access any of those from the south. You'll have to go up around Fish Creek and then come back down. So, you know, they, there's you're just going to lose the opportunity to get just a kind of passive drive-by traffic. The And you said that that starts at the YMCA, right? So you'll still be able to get right into the YMCA if, if you're coming south, right? You can get into the YMCA from Gibraltar Road. You won't be able to access it from Highway 42, at, at least as, as it sits right now. So you'd have to go County A to Gibraltar Road and then access it on that. Same thing with the school. The school buses will have to access the school parking lot by coming down Gibraltar Road, and there will be a, an asphalt paving to cross the construction zone, but that will be school personnel and school buses only. Like, no local traffic will be able to go um, left and right when they hit that spot. Do you know when this is scheduled to kick off? Yeah, it's uh, approximately March of 2019. So going through uh, Memorial Day weekend—well, actually— early May, and then you have kind of like limited access through Memorial Day weekend 
and through the end of June. There will be no construction from July 1st through Labor Day, the end of Labor Day weekend. So the, the peak summer, there won't be any construction on Highway 42, but then it will pick up again in the fall. Does that mean that things are going to be left in kind of an incomplete way, or is it just the second phase of it will kick off then? I would guess that it'll be somewhat similar when they redid Sister Bay a few years ago, where they clean up as much as they can, but it's still pretty incomplete. You know, you might still have some signage there, some uh, safety cones and things like that in different spots. But they generally, what they did in Sister Bay, they would pave over the main road with like, and just do a temporary layer down there. It wouldn't like finish it off or anything, but you'd have a layer of asphalt there. So it's not like they leave it as gravel, but it's uh, it's not going to be as, as clean as it is now. I think this is going to be challenging for sure, but uh, from what you kind of pointed out about what's actually being done, I think that there's a lot to look forward to with this project. Um, not only do I think that those those roads were problematic and needed some upkeep anyway, but I think that some of the new things that are going in, the the pedestrian stuff, the sidewalks, those are going to be really beneficial for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the pedestrian stuff has always been needed there. Ephraim's also getting some sidewalks, and Ephraim really does need sidewalks along. Uh, I mean, I know there was a lot of debate in Ephraim. They're like, oh, let's keep it the same, keep it rural, but it's like, I drive through Ephraim, even though it's slow traffic, I always get worried going through, and especially at night when pedestrians are just walking practically in the road because there's not even a big shoulder there. So Ephraim's going to get some sidewalks out of this as well. And uh, Ephraim's roads will not be awful anymore once this is done. Ephraim, when they read, the last time they resurfaced was around 2000. And basically immediately after they resurfaced, Ephraim had a bunch of, I think it was water and sewer problems, and they just had to tear up big chunks of the road. So it's basically been patchwork almost ever since they redid it the last time. Where did they find the room to put sidewalks in an Ephraim? Because I, as I drive through there, I made like careful note as I knew that this project was going up. And a lot of places, it's like road and then somebody's house. Yeah, they're doing it on the um, opposite the shore side of the road. So there's only going to be a sidewalk on one side of the, the highway and they're going to lose some trees. And I'm sure that they're going to have to eat up some little sections of front yards of, of businesses in town. The the business side of thing, I don't I don't see that being too too much of a big deal. I mean, you are a business owner. Isn't having a sidewalk right next to your business kind of a benefit? Yeah, obviously it's it's good. It's I mean, safety, it's not going to like improve business for any of them, I don't think. But um, you know, it, I think in Ephraim there's the the more pushback you would get is probably from a lot of there's a lot of private cottages along there mm-hmm. that have kind of small footprints anyway, so they're going to lose a, a chunk of a very small front yard anyway. So that's going to be uh, probably a little concerning for them. Any other takeaways from the road project? Uh, no, just that, you know, things always kind of go in flux with these projects. So we'll be updating it in the Peninsula Pulse. We'll, uh, we've actually been talking about making some business-specific maps that we would run in each issue, or, I mean, village and town-specific maps, so that as tourists arrive, they can get the latest on the update just by picking up the Pulse or looking at the Pulse online. One other thing that I wanted to talk about this week, uh, we have a new issue of the Door County Living Magazine coming out soon, right? Yeah, it's coming out. It should be getting delivered right now, but uh, it'll be pretty much everywhere by Thanksgiving. So for those who don't know, we do quarterly magazines, right? Correct. Are there four or five? There are four uh, regular editions of Door County Living Magazine, and then we do one special philanthropy issue every year. And that issue... That comes out in February and then uh, hits mailboxes later in the spring. And that one's focused entirely on the philanthropic efforts of folks in Door County. So where are we at with this current issue? Have we sent it out already? Uh, That'll be dropping for Thanksgiving. 
And uh, we just got it back from the printer, so our drivers will be out uh, tomorrow and uh, next early next week delivering that all over Door County. You can pick it up free on newsstands everywhere. Um, that's our winter issue, and this uh, it'll be on newsstands for three or four months now. Um, some great stories in there. We got some stuff on the 50th year of Fincantieri Bay ship shipbuilding. Um, great cover photo in there from Len Villano of one of the big ships coming through Sturgeon Bay last year. So I have my head in the film work side of things a lot. I do do a lot of stuff for The Pulse, the podcast included. And I've started to kind of figure out how the weekly Pulse schedule kind of works out. But I really don't know uh, how the, the magazine is created. I mean, I know that there's a ton of work that goes into it, obviously. But take me take me through the magazine. How How is it structured differently from doing a weekly Pulse? And... And how do you fit all that extra work in behind the scenes while you're still pumping out pulses every week? Yeah, it's not always smooth, but nobody who puts puts together a publication would say it is. Yeah, it's kind of like we do the magazine on top of the pulse and it's we kind of pull in some more outside contributors to do some of the writing. But generally, it's the same staff that puts the paper out every week. So we try to plan ahead as much as we can. And generally for a pulse issue or for a Door County Living issue, we have to think about a year in advance. Um, in terms of what articles we're going to do, because if you want to do the fall issue that comes out at the beginning of the fall, there's no fall colors yet in September when that issue comes out. So you need to get the photos for those topics a year in advance during that previous fall. So it it looks like a fall magazine. So you've got to think long term on the topics you're going to cover and who you're going to write about. So, So when somebody picks up that magazine, it feels appropriate for the time period. So it feels like fall. And so this winter issue that's just coming out um, we want it to highlight and feel like the best of a Door County winter as you're flipping through those pages. Are there ever circumstances where something comes up that you think that this is awesome and it's timely and instead of doing it for the Pulse this week, maybe we put it into the magazine or do you try to plan everything out ahead of time? We try to plan out as much as we can and then give ourselves room to move things if we need to. There are certain kinds of stories that can go anytime, sometimes a personality profile could go in any time of year that doesn't need as much like seasonal specific photography and feel to it. And there are times when we're like, we get a story in from, you know, somebody writes one, I write one, Jim writes one, or a contributor writes something for us. And we're like, you know what, this is, this feels more like a magazine story. And some of the factors that influence that are obviously like the, the depth of the reporting and writing, whether that piece needs to be bigger, you know, like generally a, a pulse story goes a thousand words maybe 1,500 words, but a magazine story might go 2,500 words. So you get a little more time or a little more room to play with it as a writer. And some stories deserve that more than others. And then the other thing that factors in is we ask ourselves, will this make great photography? Can we send Len out to get some really stunning photos and spread this out over eight or nine pages? Um, Or even just one great photo that will print, that will just show much better in a magazine uh, paper stock and with a full color spread versus maybe a black and white in the pulse, you know, that could totally change the way you view and read a, an article. So so those are some of the main factors that would come into that. Are you working on, uh, each magazine issue right before it comes out or are you, are you working on each thing all in turn? So is it, is it like from this month to this month, we are working on the first quarter issue and then moving on? Or do you kind of start filling these things all out at the same time? They do kind of end up blocked out um, because, you know, we're creatures of deadlines. So you put it off and you procrastinate and then you cram it all in. Um, It's just like anybody studying for a final in college and stuff. There's a degree of that. We, We get better at it with each issue. And ideally, 
we'd work far, far ahead. That doesn't always happen. But like say right now, we have a couple of articles already in for next fall's magazine. And, you know, ideally we'd have maybe half the articles in or at least in the editing process at this point. And because we want to also, you know, a writer turns that into us, we want to send it back to them and and give them some suggestions, some edits, maybe another contact to call to make it a little deeper story. You know, I'm from here, so every story, I'm going to run into these people at some point or another, and I want them to feel good about the story we did on that person or their business or their father or this topic, you know? So I sweat when the issue comes out because I'm like, did we get, did we miss a major part of this? That's the thing I hate when I'm doing a story. I'm like, am I getting this little chip of this story that I know and maybe a couple of my friends know it as, and then I'm missing this much bigger piece of the iceberg that people who've been around a lot longer maybe know a lot more of, and then this story actually isn't the best reflection that could have been told of this? Because you only kind of, most people only get to get written about once in their life if they're lucky, maybe twice or something. And so, and most people's business, they only get to see their business in print once or twice, unless they're really successful and around for a long time. So I try to keep that in mind, like, all right, this might be their only time. So even if it's one of 10 articles I'm writing this week, it's the only one these people will ever have written about them. And I want to do it justice. And with the magazine, especially, you're not going to get that many opportunities to be in the magazine. So we want to make sure that it, that it holds its water once it's out on newsstands. So I had the opportunity to do some video documenting of the distribution side of this. So I, I followed a paperboy driver um, from the time that it gets sent to the warehouse and loaded up into the vans all the way to getting delivered to our clients. How is the how is the magazine the same or, or different from how we're delivering the Pulse every week? Uh, it's pretty similar. The only the, one of the big differences is just that it's it's heavier. I've had to deliver it before. I've I've done the routes, and it's a it's a little more tedious for your delivery guys to be unloading these boxes of fifty of these thicker, heavier stock magazines versus like you know ten pulses here, twenty five there. So it's just a, a long day for those drivers for those few days. So yeah, we kind of stuck that on them right before Thanksgiving. So they're going to have bad backs. Right. Yeah, I would imagine it's harder to throw them from your bicycle into the mailbox yes. when there are <laughs> magazines and not the newspaper, <laughs> uh, which is, I assume, how that's how that I is, assumed yeah. it was done before yeah. I went on. Yeah, the, they ride, the ride a bicycle on. around and just fling them all over. Yeah. It takes um, weeks to deliver a single issue. Right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I always look forward to the Door County Living magazine when it comes out. The photography in it is awesome, and it's just cool to see the like uh, just a different flavor of what I'm seeing every week in the Pulse. Right. Um, any other cool stories to share about the the magazine? Yeah. Uh, well, the, there's one that I wrote that I'm pretty excited about uh, seeing come out in print is on a place called the Pleated House, and it's uh, this house down in Whitefish Dunes, kind of right off of the state park, that really did this cool. The way it's constructed just really plays off the land around it, and it's built to accentuate the land around it and the dunes around it. And so it's I, I, it's hard to describe. It's like a, a burnt cedar siding, mm-hmm. so that it and it's the the walls of it, the exterior walls, kind of act like pleats. They kind of look like the bark of a tree, and that's done on purpose to mimic the the trees around the home. Right. It's got big glass windows, only one interior door. It's got, uh, if you look on one side, from all sides of the building, you can see straight through to the other side and out the other side. So it really brings the outside in and the inside out. 
so to speak. Um, you know, with the with the texture on the outside, the wood, it almost makes it look like a bunch of like old rustic milk cartons all stacked on itself. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Like That's, it, because uh, it's it's very angular. It's a bunch of rectangles yeah. that are stacked and moved in different interesting locations. So it's it's the shape of the house is really interesting. And it's it's won some awards for architecture, national awards. It's um it's got a green roof. Like actually got a. Uh, a grass roof so that when you're standing in, in the bedroom on the second story in the summertime, that grass looks like it just continues into the na- landscape around it with the dunes that kind of rise around it and kind of hug the building. And in the winter, when it's snow covered, you can't really tell the difference between the roof line and the surrounding property. It's a, it's a really beautiful property and it's owned by a, a, a family that's also connected to and actually just bought back the old old timers will know the mushroom house or they call it the dome house. Other people call it the Hobbit house. And it's this really cool property that we featured a couple of years in the magazine, years ago in the magazine, that's also built into the dune. Um, Albert Quinlan built this house into a sand dune. So now it actually has trees growing up on top of the roof. Well, they've kind of saved that house, remodeled it, and are working on turning it into an artist in residency um, program where artists could come and work there, stay there for a week or two at a time and maybe work on do some programs around the county similar to what Right On Door County does. So that that family is a very creative group of individuals. The pleated house is kind of tied into that dome house that, that her father, Mary Grace Quinlan is the one who owns the pleated house, by the way. Um, her father built the mushroom house. So there's a lot of tie-in where she tried to take his creations into this new house and then tied it to an old family cottage that they grew up in back in the 50s when their family first came up here from St. Louis. So it's kind of a, it's a cool story of kind of a family connecting itself through architecture and just the images of the house itself. It's just a really cool house. Yeah. The, the, the photography in the photography in this story is, is really cool. Um, and, and you, you kind of have to see it to understand what it actually is because it's yeah. very unique. And I'm probably pretty bad at describing it. <laughs> well, definitely pick up the magazine and and check out this article specifically because the the photography in it is is really cool. There's a lot of kind of like sunset photos of the house, yeah. and you can you can really see um, how it, it blends into the woods around it. But then it also has this incredible like modern aesthetic inside. It's yeah. really unique. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it in print and seeing what people say about this issue of the magazine. Cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me this week, Miles. We're going to pass it on over to our little short panel here coming up. Uh, I will talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, we are back. I'm joined by Aaliyah Kidd and Matthew Marcon, uh, who you might know from Weekend Primer fame. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, an article that you wrote, Aaliyah, about Cherry Lane's Arcade Bar down in Sturgeon Bay. Mm-hmm. So they just opened up two weeks ago now. I know that they had kind of a soft open and then they, you know, all of a sudden were open. Yep. Uh, They officially opened November 1st. So right on, I think that was a Thursday, but yeah. When did you go down? I went down about a week ago. So on Friday. Last Friday. Cool. Okay, so you've been there. I went there. Matt, you haven't been there yet. I haven't been yet, no. Uh, But you are big into arcades and bars and bowling alleys. Yeah, and I know that this was something that we had been talking about all summer, just off behind the pod, like not on the podcast, but just like something that we were super excited for. Um, So I'm looking forward to going. Right. Uh, Aaliyah, what was your take? I was really impressed with the space. I mean, I did walk in there with our photographer, Len, who said he didn't recognize the space at all. So I don't really have that prior history of the space, but when I walked in, it definitely looked like there's been a lot of work done, but it still had that retro vibe. And there was a lot of interesting relics 
back to the 1929 building's age, which I thought was really interesting. And it was really fun to explore. Yeah, I noticed that too. So a lot of times when a a new establishment tries to invoke a retro feel, they'll pull one or two things uh, from that aesthetic and try to, you know, they'll use that as flavor for the rest of the the interior. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Cherry Lanes, it seemed like the focus was really on reclamation and restoration and bringing the the old building kind of back with a new coat of paint and kind of a new, you know, foundation on it. Right. So there were a lot of throwbacks to the original Cherry Lanes bowling alley. I think they had the blueprints on the wall, which mm-hmm. was really cool. Yep. Um, but then... It was it was kind of jarring for me though because again I'm used to that kind of like uh, fresh new thing with uh, some sort of flavor of a retro aesthetic. But this was I mean they they hit the retro thing from the bar top to the tiling to the carpet to the chairs like mm-hmm. everything comes out of that like uh, that 50s 60s aesthetic mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mid century yeah um, Kevin when he was talking about how they remodeled the space mentioned just how he it took so long primarily because he had to do a lot of work starting from the ground up to the ceiling but he also spent a lot of time uh, refinishing and reinvigorating some of the chairs and the bowling lanes and figuring out how to fix them and revitalize them so people could use them so there are a lot of those touches still there from the old space right does that work? Does that going back and just and just refinishing and and making it up to date of the of the retro style instead of giving it a retro flavor with its own new style? Does that work? I I don't know if they're if they're one hundred percent finished yet, um, and and I think time will tell how how they pull everything off. I think that the the front area, which is where the bar is, was. It was nice and open and clean. They have a bunch of uh, windows right in the front of the shop, so it's very well lit um, and has this kind of cool bar atmosphere. And then as you work your way back, uh, they're kind of sectioned off in two little places. So there's the arcade section, and then there's the bowling alley. And I think that all three areas have their merits, but I don't think everything is as cohesive as it could be yet. And I think that time will, you know, time will tell how they pull everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do while you were there? Did you? Did you take a sample of each thing or did you focus on one thing specifically? Um, well, I talked with both Aaron and, and Kevin Basman, who are the owners, and got the full story behind what it took to really bring that place to life and revitalize it. Um, so we kind of walked around. And then Kevin showed us um, the insides of a pinball machine, which is very interesting. He's obviously very knowledgeable in pinball machines and needs to know how to fix them now that he owns an arcade like this. Um, So we got to sample that. And then we also popped upstairs, which is kind of the staging area for them right now, but learned a little bit about the history of the building up there, which used to be anything from a ballroom to a roller skate rink to a wrestling arena. It's very interesting. We started at the bar, got a couple drinks. We ordered some pizza uh, and then we moved on and we played an hour of bowling, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, There's four lanes. We were the only ones bowling while we were there. Um, so it wasn't cramped or overcrowded. Uh, and the price was right, too. It's $15 for an hour of bowling. Um, so for four of us, that was less than five bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then we kind of moved out, played some darts, and checked out the arcade with the machines and the pinball. Uh, did you get to spend any time in the bowling alley or the arcade section? I didn't do any bowling, but I did go back later that night, and we played some of the arcade games, which I'm terrible at, but it was fun to try. Um, I think it was uh, Thunder Thunderbolt something. Mm-hmm. It was like a shooting game. Sure. That was kind of fun. <laughs> and then we played some darts, which 
I'm a big dart fan, so I was glad to see that they had darts. Um, there's also pool tables and foosball and air hockey. As a game enthusiast, what kind of games do they have? Do you, not I mean, just a short little list. Sure. Right? I mean, they have. Uh, I know that that the arcade section is a work in progress, and they're 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 working on bringing in a bigger selection. They have some arcade staples: uh, Asteroids, Centipede. I don't believe they have a Pac-Man machine, but they do have like a Pac-Mania machine, which is kind of an updated, different take hmm. on Pac-Man. It's more of like a 3D style game. I think they have Miss Pac-Man, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that there might be a Miss Pac-Man Galaga, like, dual machine mm-hmm. there. They have a multi-cade, which is, you can play pretty much any arcade game on it. While I was there, the multi-cade machine wasn't working, so I didn't get to try that out. Um, some of the big missing things for me right now are fighting games of any sort. So usually when... When I think of an arcade, I think of going with my friends and sitting down on a machine together and playing a fighting game with each other. Uh, They don't have anything like that currently. A couple racing games, a couple shooting games. Uh, They got Bad Dudes there, which is uh, a hilarious game if you know anything about it. The intro sequence, uh, you you are sent on a mission to save the president's daughter, and they're like, are you a bad enough dude to save the president's daughter? (laughs) Bad Dudes is a gem. Um, But... Missing some of the staples that I that I, I hope to see at an arcade. Hopefully, that's something that you know they continue to work on and and improve. Uh, I've talked before on the podcast about how I make it a point to go to every arcade bar that I can when I travel. Um, I've been to there's a really great one in Milwaukee. Um, up down in Minneapolis is huge. It's a three story arcade bar, and they have games from arcade machines all the way to uh, tabletop Pac Man and classic video games, N64, Dance Dance Revolution. Like, they've got everything there. Wow. Um, so I make it a point to go to arcade bars, and it's really cool that Door County has one now. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do in the future to kind of uh, curate that lineup more. Do you know, you know, we had, we had talked, we'd spoke a little bit that he's not quite done with the place and it's not quite finished. Do you know what other plans he has? What's, what's in store, like, for the upstairs? Do you know if he has anything planned? Um, well, I guess when it comes to Kevin, he's never done with when it comes to pinball and arcade. So I think it's just con- going to continuously be a work in progress. But um, they are just excited to get the doors open and get people welcomed into the space and s- start serving that community down there. It's meant to be really family friendly too, a place for everybody. Um, but yeah, for the ballroom, um, no big plans yet. But of course, down the road, eventually they are. They would love to be able to have a space up there too. But like I said, right now. Now it's kind of a staging area for them to finish what they just opened. Are they planning on staying open all winter? Yes, they are open all winter, longer days during the weekend, of course, but every night too. Awesome. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, I know that they were hoping to get open earlier on in the season, but uh, to be able to open up here as things get quiet, I think that that's going to be great, especially down there in Sturgeon Bay. I mean, Sturgeon Bay is still seasonal, but a lot less so. I mean, it's a much more year-round community. Mm -hmm. Um, So they should be able to take advantage of people looking for something to do down there. Uh, Yeah, and Aaron did mention there's nothing set in stone yet, but they are looking at ways to do recreational bowling leagues, um, get theme nights in there. So looking at a few fundraisers too to help some local nonprofits. So there's definitely lots in the works. I think, you know, now that they can actually open the doors, they're excited to start um, working on those different programs or themes and have more fun with it. Cool. Well, this is exciting, Matt. You and I will have to go down there and hang out so that we can yeah. get you through the doors at Cherry Lane. Well, I'm just excited that you actually want to hang out with me outside of work. Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Aaliyah. Uh, mm-hmm. Looking forward to reading your article in this week's Pulse. And I will chat with you both again later. Sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. 
These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.